This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones, former principal, host of the podcast Transformative Principal, and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. Greetings, folks. I'm Frederick Lane. I'm an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I are teaming up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the nation's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and today, social cybersecurity, which I'm excited about. Please join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. Hello there, Jethro. Hello, and welcome to Jason Hung, Hong, excuse me, who is our guest today. I'm going to read a little bit of his bio, then we'll get started. So um, Jason is a full professor in the Human Computer Interaction Institute, which is part of the School of Computer Science at Carnegie Mellon. And he was a former associate editor for IEEE Pervasive Computing and currently on the editorial board for ACM Transactions on Computer-Human Interaction. And he has co-chaired or chaired a number of technical program committees, including Hot Mobile, Mobisys, and the CHI, and also served on the SIG Mobile's Test of Time Committee. I don't even know what any of these things are. It's like I'm reading a foreign language here, Jason. But <laughs> he is a Alfred P. Sloan Research Fellow, a National cybersecurity fellow, and a member of CHI Academy, which is an honorary group of individuals who have made substantial contributions to the field of human-computer interaction. And finally, he co-founded Wombat Security Technologies, a startup that commercialized NSF-funded research on anti-phishing that was acquired by Proofpoint for $225 million in 2018. So that is 
there's a lot there, Jason. Welcome to Cybertraps Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Really excited to talk to you today. So tell us first what this idea of social cybersecurity is and, and what that means and how we can understand that. Well, a lot of cybersecurity looks at the computer itself, which is how do we make computers more secure in terms of the network or the software. And then uh, around 2000 or so, there was an emerging field known as usable privacy and security, which looked at a lot of these human factors issues. So why did people not understand these user interfaces or misconfigure their their systems? Uh, What we're looking at with social cybersecurity is the social dimensions of cybersecurity, which is how do we influence each other with respect to cybersecurity? So how do we influence others to adopt or not adopt these kinds of best practices And how do people learn about cybersecurity in the first place? So we also sort of joke too that, you know, we wanted to originally call it social security, but that name was taken. So hence social security. (laughs) That's funny. So so when you think about the social aspect of cybersecurity, you're talking about people falling for phishing scams and other kinds of scams online that take advantage of social engineering and things like that. Is that a good way to uh, summarize that? Uh, that's part of it, and that's probably the most prominent aspect of uh, social cybersecurity. But another way to think about this is if you look at psychology, uh, there's different branches of psychology. So, for example, cognitive psychology looks at how individuals understand things. Uh, but there's also social psychology, which is how people interact with each other and influence each other, too. Um, so, for example, um, if there was an origin story for this research, which happened at Wombat Security, there was two women who were talking with each other and I just happened to overhear them talking. And one of them was saying to the other, oh, did you hear what happened to Mo the other day? He slipped on the ice and he broke his laptop and now he can't get access to his data anymore. And then the other woman said, oh, that's really terrible. I'm gonna go back up my data right now. And she did. And I thought that was really amazing because of this interaction that this one woman had heard about what happened to this other friend in common that she actually took a positive action with respect to cybersecurity. And this was the light bulb moment for me because uh, my department in, uh, it's called the Human Computer Interaction Institute at Carnegie Mellon. My department is really unusual in that we have computer scientists and designers and behavioral scientists all sitting next to each other. And I was, I've been around the social scientists long enough that I started osmosing some of their principles. And this struck me as a perfect example because you know, rather than building a better system or adding more specific features for cybersecurity, here we had a simple interaction where one person's actions led another person to change their behaviors, again, for a positive uh, view for cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. We expanded it to more of that too, because there's all these principles in social psychology as to how to influence each other. Well, and that was, that was going to be precisely the question I was going to ask is so, um, to minimize the number of broken laptops that we need in order to make this work, what are the tools that you implement to uh, inculcate or encourage that kind of? In- yeah, so one of the ones we've been using to great effect is known as social proof. And the basic idea behind social proof is if you don't know what to do, usually a pretty good heuristic is just to follow what everybody else around you is doing. So uh, the way I sort of joke about this is uh, back in the times pre-pandemic uh, when we're still flying around, if you've ever gotten off the plane and you didn't know which way to go to the baggage claim, if you just follow most of the people, you're probably going to end up in the right spot. Right? 
Now, obviously, this heuristic does not work all the time. You might end up on a flight to the wrong place if you do that. Direction. Well, wouldn't right. you also call this the lemming fallacy? I mean, <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, they, occasionally you'll go off with. Yeah, there is the blind leading the blind potential uh, for things going wrong. But uh, in many cases, it actually works surprisingly well. And I think the thing that's really powerful about it is that most people don't know that they are being influenced by other people. And uh, I mean this in a really powerful way, too. So there's this really amazing work looking at getting people to save power uh, in the Western United States a long time ago. And uh, the basic idea is that they had four different neighborhoods. And the psychologists in the study, they handed out uh, four different kinds of flyers. One flyer said something like, okay, saving power is good because it'll save you money. Another one had saving power is good because it's good for the kids of tomorrow. The third one was that it'll help save the environment. And the fourth one said, most of your neighbors are doing it already. And uh, since you already know where the story is going. And so it turns out the first three had almost no effect on people's behaviors. And the fourth one had a dramatic decrease in terms of people's uh, saving money or, you know, reducing electrical use. And this cool. is actually a fairly robust finding that uh, there was another really famous study about hotels where they asked people to reuse their towels instead of getting a new towel every day because, well, well it's good for the environment and also saves money. But uh, the intervention, which is really crazy, just said the last person in this hotel room also reused their towel and that outperformed all the other ones, all the other interventions. And so this really shows you just how powerful these social influences are, also in a way that we also don't realize too, because when uh, the people who did the study about power, when they asked people, did this flyer about your neighbors, what their behaviors were, did that influence you? Everybody basically said no, but it obviously did. So this is really how powerful and subtle these kinds of social influences are. Jason, I actually have some direct experience with this. I lived for 23 years in Burlington, Vermont, and I ran for the Burlington School Board. I was on the board for, for a decade. And in order to get on the ballot in Burlington, Vermont, you had to get 35 signatures to basically nominate you. And it was really remarkable how carefully people looked at who else had signed your nomination papers. And you knew that if you got two or three from a particular street, you would be able to clean up on that street. And, and, and this is, I think, exactly the kind of thing you're talking about. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Another really good everyday example is uh, wait waiters and waitresses or bartenders that uh, if there's a tip jar, sometimes they'll start by putting their own money in it first. And then that leads people to realize, oh, I should do this too. And then, you know, sort of a network positive effect for them. So I've been, I've been saying for years that I use a, a tool called one password to make strong passwords. And uh, I, I don't know if I should say this, but even my wife sometimes still reuses the same password because she can't figure out how to get the thing to work. Not that, and she's totally smart, could totally do it, but she, she's not willing or interested in investing the time. So you know, how do we, how do we, especially with strong passwords, how do we get people to use password managers and things to keep their, their uh, passwords more secure than what they typically are? So uh, I can tell you about one study that my colleagues and I did with Facebook research, and uh, it was to look at how we can use social proof to uh, hopefully influence people's behaviors with cybersecurity for the better. 
And so uh, every year, cyber, uh, Facebook runs these annual cybersecurity campaigns to try to help people improve their cybersecurity, which is, I think, almost everybody would universally agree is a good thing. And uh, we offered some new interventions. So the standard intervention would be on your newsfeed, you would see a message that says something like, um, extra security settings exist, please click here to learn more. Uh, we changed it to say things like, 10% uh, of your friends use extra security settings, or 101 of your friends use extra security settings, or some of your friends use extra security settings. Uh, it turns out that all of those, actually all the social proof ones led to an increase in click-through rates and the one that worked the best was actually some of your friends use extra security settings. And uh, it really did get people to uh, increase the adoption of things like two-factor authentication, the trusted logins. So uh, trusted logins is if you are locked out of your account on Facebook for some reason, then um, you might have pre-designated some of your other friends who can let you back in. So for example, you might name five friends and then three, any three of them will let you back in. Um, but it turns out that all of these social influences were actually positive in terms of getting people to adopt things. However, there is a really funny kind of finding that we also had too, which is that uh, in some of our earlier studies about this, uh, we were asking people about what led to their uh, changes in security behaviors. Sometimes uh, there are negative influences as well too. So for example, a lot of computer security people are viewed as really paranoid and then you might think, well, I'm not a paranoid person. I'm not like you know, that crazy person, Jason, over there. And so maybe I'm not going to adopt this. And so we did see almost exactly what you just mentioned about husbands and wives and spouses, basically, where sometimes the husband wants to you know, get the wife to adopt something or vice versa, and they don't for a variety of reasons. So to give you like another crazy example of this, I've never actually listened to the music of this band named Insane Clown Posse. Right. And uh, I have no idea whether the music is any good or not, but if you don't know what their fans look like, just do a quick Google search right now. You'll see people who are wearing all this crazy makeup and, you know, they have, you know, they look like, well, they look like insane clown posse. And uh, I look at those fans and I think, oh, this is not for me. But I, again, I have no idea what their music is like. They might actually be really good. But this is an example of sort of the opposite side of social proof, too, which can also have a negative influence on adoption. Yeah. So basically you're saying that if the, if the social proof is of someone that they would want to be like, then they'll do it. If it's somebody that they would like to avoid, then they're going to say, no, I'm out. I want nothing to do with that. Right. Exactly. And if you remember, there's this um, really famous fashion brand, I think it's called Burberry. And so Burberry, you know, they had that uh, really obvious kind of, um, I guess, kind of plaid kind of uh, uh, design for their, their clothes and for all of their fashion. And for a while, uh, there was a whole bunch of these low-class individuals who were using it because they thought it was high-class, which was causing damage to their brand, right? Because you start associating with this low-class kind of individuals. So again, this is another example of how this kind of um, negative aspect of social proof can affect things. In your research, Jason, do you find that corporate culture plays a significant role in terms of the effectiveness of these different kind of social approval or social security initiatives? Yeah, we have been looking at ways of assessing the culture and also the readiness of these kinds of organizations. So we've also developed a survey instrument. It's six questions. We call it SA6, and that stands for Security Attitudes Six Questions, uh, to try to understand people's uh, attitudes towards security. And uh, as you can imagine, things like 
you know, I feel like I can have the ability to change things or I'm aware of these kinds of things. Uh, those are uh, similar to the kinds of questions we ask. But uh, those are the individuals that are much more likely to have the intention to adopt and also are willing to adopt these kinds of things too. Um, but we don't know exactly uh, how these different kinds of cultures and attitudes can change or how we can influence them in a larger kind of manner. Like I mentioned some about social proof and so on, but you can imagine that if you have a CEO and executives who don't seem to care a lot about cybersecurity, well, you know, they're going to be setting an example for the rest of the team as well, too. So there's lots of different kinds of moving knobs, and we're still in the early stages of understanding that. And I mean, not just we as our research group, but we as an entire research community. One of the things that I experienced as a school principal was that our IT department did a phishing test to see who would respond to the, um, the email or who would click on the links in the email and they made it look very official, but didn't tell anybody that it was a test. And so uh, people got uh, locked out of their computers intentionally as like a punishment for doing this. And all that did was leave a bad taste in everybody's mouth and made us think we couldn't trust our IT department because they were, you know, sending us something that was malicious in, in its intent. And even though they were trying to like, have a real point and that's all well and good. It just made us lose trust. How do you build that, that idea of cyber safety and security without damaging trust like that? So uh, I think that uh, I might be partially to blame for these phishing tests. Uh, my colleagues and I at Carnegie Mellon were the ones who pioneered a lot of the early research showing that these phishing tests actually do work in terms of teaching people. Uh, however, I should caveat by saying that all of our phishing tests, these simulated phishing attacks, were done to train people and not just to assess people. So I think there's a really big difference there because if you yeah. are people, people see the value because uh, they realize that this could have happened to them. And we discovered that this creates a teachable moment where uh, people will actually learn. We discovered that if you just send the training materials to people, it has no effect. There's no difference in whether they will fall for fish again in the future or not. But if you create this teachable moment and train them, then it actually is very effective. And we found that roughly it reduces the uh, incident rate for phishing by about 50%. So, so also, if you teach a man to fish, you protect them for a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, come on. <laughs> it's not quite a lifetime. Um, but uh, if I can go off on a quick tangent too, one thing we discovered that's also really fascinating uh, one of the questions I always ask in my class is, okay, who do you think is most likely to fall for phishing attacks? So is it the you know, 18 to 25s or 25 to 35, 35 to 45 or 45 and above, right? And uh, almost universally, all the students think, oh, okay, it's the older people who are most likely to fall for it and the younger people are not. But it's actually the opposite. The younger people, the 18 to 25, mm -hmm. actually far more likely to fall for phishing attacks than the older people. And the data is actually pretty strong and consistent too. Uh, we've seen this from, you know, banks have told me that they've seen the exact same results, which is really surprising because a lot of people keep thinking, oh, the older people are more likely to fall for this because it's computer savvy. It's a little bit unclear whether it's something like, you know, because your insurance, car insurance goes down when you're 25, maybe because you're cognitively more mature, maybe because the younger generation just is more used to clicking on things maybe the younger generation has nothing, a lot less to lose. It's actually not clear. But anyway, just sort of an interesting tangent. 
Do you find that um, the intense networking of the younger generation might be a factor in that, in that they're used to social influence from peers? And this might be an example of, of kind of negative behavior in the sense that, as you suggest, they're encouraged to click on things, they're used to moving very quickly within their peer group, et cetera. Yeah, I think there's a, definitely a possibility of that. Uh, it also might be that you know, younger people might not just have been exposed to enough risks uh, online uh, that you know, they don't realize how many things can go badly. I guess I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit this, but you know, when I was much younger, you know, in that age range, 18 to 25, I don't think I necessarily made the best life decisions. <laughs> right. And, and so yeah, I think there's something to group, that. Jason. <laughs> <laughs> right. But uh, going back to uh, Jethro's question about building trust, yeah, I, I think that making sure that there is a clear value proposition for the team, because IT and your information security office is usually the people who say, no, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. And it gets really burdensome pretty quickly. But I think if you can work with them or if you can try to work with people to help them understand, here's why we're doing it. And what do you think is the right thing given these circumstances? So it becomes a little bit less of a, a bludgeon or a club and more of an open dialogue to help convince people, this is why we're doing it this way. And here's why we think it's the right thing. I think that's probably a pretty good way of trying to build trust. Trust is a really interesting topic, um, just uh, sort of parallel to what we're talking about today. I'm, I'm working on this new book called The Rise of the Digital Mob, which is looking at how various digital technologies have led to the public discourse that we have today. And one of the themes that will be emerging a little bit later in the book is this is the role of digital technology with respect to anti-vaxxing, for instance. And it seems to me that that is the same kind of trust issue that you're talking about in the sense that people need to be educated about the relative benefits of a vaccine or two-factor security um, in order to implement it, in order to accept it as being a rational thing to do. Have, has any of that overlapped in your work at all? Uh, not directly. Uh, I do have several colleagues who are looking at notions of disinformation and how disinformation spreads through networks. Uh, sometimes it is deliberate and sometimes it's just accidental. Yeah, so th that's not something we've directly looked at. But what I can say is that uh, it's sort of like a interesting phenomenon that we have so much information available to us today and we're flooded with it. And now we have this problem of it's hard to tell what is good information and what is bad information. In fact, there's a really famous a Nobel Prize winner out of my university. His name is Herbert Simon. And uh, he's the only person who won a Nobel Prize in economics and the Turing Award, which is the top computer science award. In fact, it's probably a feat that will never be matched ever again. Uh, but what's interesting is that he had this interesting analogy here, which is that um, if you have an abundance of lettuce, all right, so let's start, assume that you have that. And then if you have an abundance of rabbits as well too, you run out of lettuce, right? And so that's sort of like a really simple kind of example. But then the same thing is sort of true with our attention. If you have an abundance of information, then the competing thing that we're running out of now is our attention, that we just don't have enough time to look at things, to understand things, to assess the quality of the information. And then we start relying on social factors too. Like, okay, here's what my neighbor said. 
or here's what this person down the street said. And the, the internet has been good for us in that we can now aggregate and find other people around the world that you know, have similar, uh, similar kinds of beliefs to us and similar kinds of interests. So for example, knitting or Dungeons and Dragons or anime or cybersecurity. But at the same time, you can now easily find white supremacists and you can now also easily find anti-vaxxers and so on, which makes it easier to amplify misinformation in a way that was never possible before. You know, if you were looking for, you know, anti-vaccine information before the internet age, you'd have to look very locally. And, you know, most of your neighbors probably might not have been interested in that. But nowadays you can easily find all these people. And it's also easy to find that misinformation because you might search for reasons why vaccines don't work. And then you're missing the opposite case, which is reasons why vaccines do work. So our, our tools are actually working against us in ways that we haven't imagined. That's really interesting. I think what, what you're referencing or, or alluding to is, is basically bubble formation, right? And, and this has been one of the byproducts of the growth of the internet. If in your scenario, somebody who was a serious anti-vaxxer um, only had around his physical community, the percentage of people who would share those beliefs was probably relatively low. And more significantly, he would be regularly interacting with people who did not agree. And so that exchange of information would moderate his position, presumably. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And uh, the thing that, again, people don't realize is that you have to look for counter information as well, too. And so, like I said, if you just go to YouTube or any kind of search engine and you search for anti-vax information, you don't get the opposite side of the views, which might be incredibly valuable. I would also add the other thing that's making it hard is the uh, education, that, you know, teaching people about science as well as critical thinking. So trying to understand both cases. So, so I, can, I can give you sort of like a, oh, this is going to get a little bit political, but I can give you like a really extreme example of this. Uh, so I heard from some intelligence analysts very informally that during the buildup to the second Iraq war in 2003, intelligence analysts were told they were only assigned to the case there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and no analysts were assigned to the opposite case. And we saw what happened, right? And so this is really an example of why you really need to look for the opposite case as well too, but also to understand how to assess the information and try to understand what kinds of sources are more reliable. So, you know, what kinds of science papers are more reliable versus sort of like these fake journal papers or the ones that have less support from the scientific community. So I want to share something that I experienced just a, a, a few weeks ago where there was a, on the trending Twitter, there was this thing that was saying that the Vatican was out of power, the Eiffel Tower was out of power and Pakistan was out of power. And it was late at night you know, it was like nine or 10 o'clock at night for me. So even later on the East coast. And I saw that and I was like, that's pretty interesting. And I had to force myself to go through this critical thinking process to say, who's tweeting about this? Nobody that I know so far, let me go check my trusted news sources um, and see if they're saying anything about it. There's nothing about it there. And, you know, pretty soon as I because I was curious, was continuing to follow this, I saw that people started saying, well, the Eiffel Tower shuts off at night all the time and it's not a big deal and and different things from people who seem to have more credibility than the original 
people who were posting about it and just retweeting like crazy. So anyway, I just, I find that personal experience interesting because I feel like I'm a pretty like aware person and I pay attention and know what's, what's true. And I feel like I have critical thinking skills. And yet even I was like, oh my goodness, what's going on? Is there something going on? And I got suckered into it really easily. So even if you, you have these skills, you still need to be on your toes and, and pay attention to what people are saying out there about different things. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And I think it's also still worth pointing out that sometimes uh, the crowd is right about these kinds of things. So I remember a particularly pointed example was uh, when uh, the U.S. sent some military to assassinate uh, Osama bin Laden, that there was some person in Abbottabad that just happened to tweet, man, there's some helicopters out at 2 a.m. What are they doing? And he was right. I mean, <laughs> there really were <laughs> out there. Uh, so, I mean, the crowd really sometimes can be right, but the challenge is that uh, people might misinterpret things or there might be sometimes, again, deliberate misinformation or disinformation. And the accidents and the deliberate disinformation might take only minutes to create, but it might take hours or days to debunk it or to find more information. And that's a huge kind of problem that we're facing right now, that it's just so easy for people who are... Um, you know, going against the interests, let's say the long-term interests of democracy in the United States around the world, it's easy for them to just sit anywhere around the world and tweet things and just cause lots of problems. That's interesting because, you know, we began talking about cybersecurity and there's, there's a variety of different security issues, right, that we're confronting as, a, as an open democracy. And, and it seems to me that we're making some progress in terms of better securing the things that are important to us physically, like our accounts, our, our devices and so forth. But we're struggling with the more ephemeral security of intellect and ideas and public discourse. Well, uh, I, I think that we're not doing well in any of this fronts actually. <laughs> uh, well, that's depressing. I was encouraged briefly. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, cybersecurity is, uh, there's been a lot of breaches, you know, almost every week, I would say there's some kind of headline news about a, a new kind of data breach as well, too. So uh, as of, you know, early January 2021, this is the solar winds hack. Uh, I think one of the most interesting things about cybersecurity is that a lot of it is actually pretty basic, that if you want to try to protect yourself or your organization, that there's a lot of really basic steps you can take. So for example, you know, you have strong passwords for your most important accounts. And so you, we, I think we mostly know what strong passwords are. We don't like using them because they're hard to type or hard to remember, but I think a lot of people do know what a strong password is now. Uh, the one that's probably more important is don't reuse these passwords because if one of those accounts is compromised, then all of the ones that use the same account or same password is compromised too. Uh, we don't actually... We, we don't have any official sponsors yet, but I will give a shout out to Dashlane, which is the one that I use. Uh, Jethro, you use 1Password, I think? That's right, yep. Yeah, yeah. how about you, Jason? Uh, I use this uh, special one for Android, so I just keep all my phones, uh, or all my passwords on my phone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. And I've Wisely been, you know, isn't revealing the name of it. Maybe yeah, that's well, I'm trying not to. <laughs> I wanna be more like Jason, so I'm going to stop saying who I use until they sponsor the podcast. Uh, Right. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> Just that's kidding. a fair quid pro quo. <laughs> yeah. 
well, look, I, you know, when I when I do these when I do lectures for for groups, um, regardless of which of these you use, I mean, obviously, a password manager really can help automate all of this. You know, in terms of generating strong passwords, not reusing, et cetera. Look, I'll confess, I I need to go through and and improve my password hygiene because I have some legacy passwords that are way overused. Um, so yeah, it, it makes sense. What other tips would you offer people, Jason? Yeah. So to recap, we have uh, use strong passwords. Don't reuse those passwords. Do use a password manager. Uh, Use two-factor authentication. So those are the extra codes that might be sent to your phone. Uh, try to keep your software up to date uh, because there sometimes will be these things known as zero-day attacks where um, an attacker might have found a new kind of vulnerability and then will try to compromise software that way. And, uh, and actually, if you, don't, if, you don't, if you don't mind, oh, what, sure. what, what's the definition of a zero-day attack? What, what does that term mean? So uh, that, that basically means it's a brand new attack that was just discovered. Uh, so it's the zeroth day where it just happened. And uh, then there might be attackers who are trying to use that to exploit systems. It, it turns out that uh, you, know, you, you have to worry about those with the most sophisticated attackers. So those tend to be state-sponsored attackers or ones who have a lot of money behind them. Um, but you know, for everyday life, if you manage to update your software within like a week or so, you're probably still going to be okay. But wasn't, I mean, there's some irony in all of this. If I recall correctly, with respect to solar winds, wasn't it the update itself that introduced the vulnerability for the hackers? Yeah, yeah, th that is actually true as well, too. I've seen some security experts also deeply concerned about that because this is a counterexample. It's a rare counterexample, but also one that has caused a lot of damage. But I would say that the root cause was actually a weak password on their um, servers for SolarWinds. And what's also interesting, too, is that apparently several cybersecurity experts told SolarWinds that they had a weakness in their passwords there, and they didn't do anything about it. So it really is sort of an example of a supply chain issue where the supplier should have been much better about things, and they weren't. Well, that'll damage your, bo your bottom line a bit going forward. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, this is actually one of the big surprises, too, is that there have been so many data breaches in the U.S. in so many different kinds of companies, and uh, we haven't seen sort of a proportional effect on their stock prices. So, for example, like uh, Equifax, you know, after they had that major cybersecurity breach, you know, I haven't checked their, their stock prices recently, but I don't think it had a huge negative impact on them. And same thing with, uh, you know, when LinkedIn had one, when Yahoo had one, you know, when all these companies had one, it's actually sort of surprising that there hasn't been more of a connection. What it tells me is that we don't really value privacy as much as we think we do, because if we did, I think that it'd have a much bigger impact on their bottom line, that people would stop using them and would flee from them if we really cared about that. Is Do you think that's an accurate interpretation or where? what would you suggest there? Yeah, so for the Equifax case, it feels like well, almost like a, a classic definition of an externality, which is that the burden of the security breach uh, is on individuals like you and me and not on Equifax and their customers because the customers are basically people doing credit checks. So the customers are not affected at all by the data breach, but you and I are. For other cases, yeah, it is, again, sort of surprising that that hasn't influenced them. So I'm not sure what the economics of that are. 
Well, I, I think the economics are that there's there's very little cost, right, to a privacy violation. And if some misuse of that information is made, is made of that information, then the pain of that falls on the individual whose information was stolen. And there's no good mechanism for recompense against Equifax, for instance. You know, and I think one of the things that I've spent some time looking at, because I've written about privacy, is, is this issue of whether or not a corporation can more directly be held liable for the economic consequences of the theft of data. And I think until we had more of a federal legislative response, that's not gonna happen. Yeah, and in fact, uh, legislation is one of the common kinds of ways, or regulation too, is one of the common ways of trying to address these externalities. So then uh, the burden of it really is on the individuals that are causing the problem. Uh, another possible solution I've been trying to advocate for too, is that we should start requiring more cybersecurity insurance and then your security premiums, you know, start going up if you don't follow these best practices. So that's another kind of way of quickly disseminating these kinds of best practices. That sounds really smart. Well, let me ask one final short question because we, we are really reaching out to the education community. Um, are there any specific suggestions you'd have for schools to harden their networks and their resources because a number of schools have been hit by ransomware attacks. And so that becomes a, you know, that becomes a real issue if you can't run your school. Yeah, so one possibility is there is a class of services known as managed service providers, uh, MSPs, and uh, you can sort of outsource a lot of your network IT to them. So I don't remember the names of all of them, but for example, Dell SecureWorks is one of them. You should see if you can get sponsorship from them now. <laughs> but I like the uh, way you think <laughs> they can help with, you know, uh, looking for data breaches or looking for, um, you know, making sure your, your networks are set up securely, firewalls and so on. Uh, but uh, like I was saying earlier, a lot of cybersecurity is actually pretty basic. So keep your software up to date. In this case, you also probably want firewalls, uh, strong, unique passwords, uh, two factor authentication. And uh, for the most part, that will probably keep most of your networks pretty secure. Um, there also are conferences and venues to help people with IT, though I think that's mostly aimed at colleges and universities versus K through 12. Uh, so it's definitely something that probably needs to be addressed at the school district and state level versus an individual school level, because there's just not enough resources really for each individual school to manage it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And it's not, it's not really possible for them to control a lot of that infrastructure because they don't do it anyway. So it definitely is more at the district level. Um, and there are a lot more uh, managed services providers that, that offer that kind of service. There, there are tons of them. And a lot of rural school districts especially are moving to that because usually in a small school district, you know, the best IT guy is, you know, the guy down the street who knows how to use technology, but he's not He's not the best one to deal with these kind of higher level problems that truly exist. So, um, so I appreciate that. It's been a great conversation, Jason. Thank you so much for being part of the Cyber Traps podcast. It was uh, really good to talk with you today. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. That wraps up this episode of the Cyber Traps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, which we obviously touched on today, 
privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of interesting experts who are helping us to understand the risks and rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps, and we hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. Most of your friends are already listening and would love a rating and review from you. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you really did like this show. And so please do leave us a five-star rating and review. We would appreciate it. And we do appreciate having you in our audience and look forward to having you join us for our next episode. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master's schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.